105. It is Thursday night, June 24th, the Herbal Lord 2021. For those of you watching the live stream, I know it seems kind of wonky, but for those of you watching the replay, it's all going to make sense in the end. Jam-packed show tonight. Summer has officially started. By the time we get out of summer, we will be three weeks into the college football season. So just to give you a little idea of context and where we are in the grand scheme of things, time, time, time. My favorite Hooting the Blowfish song, by the way. We got a jam-packed show tonight. The Arizona State dossier, which you heard me talk about last week, and a lot of you gave me feedback on last week. I have a little different angle to take on tonight, and we got to go a little bit further in depth on that, because I think maybe what I said last week was misconstrued into thinking that I was somehow endorsing every step that the NCAA has taken in implementing rules on this. It's not like that at all, but yet rules are rules. So we're going to dive a little bit further because that dossier and parts of it have started to leak. How about 2021 with Dan Mullen? I think this is probably, it's not his make or break season or anything like that, but I think it's a defining year for Dan Mullen. I'm going to give you several reasons. I was talking to someone about this earlier today, and I just decided, hey, let's make it a topic on the show. Also talking earlier today on Twitter about Georgia and Texas A&M. And I said, hey, if someone were to come from the future, and they told you, I just came back from 2025, and one of those two has won a national title by then, do you want to guess which one it is? Where would you go? Because voting was very close. Could be headed for a runoff, as a matter of fact. Voting very close on that. All that, plus Big 12 swing games. And uh, we got some more, too. So make sure you're following the social channels, at Lake Kick Josh, Instagram and Twitter. And I appreciate you guys so much getting us over 1,500 five-star reviews on the Late Kick podcast. I mean, we're, we're approaching 1,600 now. But man, I was scrolling through some of those five-star reviews today, and you can leave a written review while you do that. And we had one from a guy named Tim. And man, I got to read you guys this because this was how I started my day. We get a lot. You'd be surprised at how many emails I get that are like this. But this one was public. And so because it was public, I figured I could share it with you guys. Tim puts in his podcast review, I'm at home recovering from a severe cancer-related surgery and recovery. Without ever smoking or chewing or drinking in my life, I've developed aggressive tongue cancer. It's been difficult. Two major surgeries so far, nine months in. I picked up on this show one afternoon while browsing YouTube, and I was hooked. It was the best, most consistently high-quality, frequently posted show on college football available. Not only that, it's helped keep my mind occupied with something other than the tough road ahead and the pain I'm facing. Thanks to Josh and crew for helping keep it positive. I want to tell you, Tim, I've never met you before. That meant the world to all of us. I mean, it meant the world to us, more than you can know. And I know a lot of times we joke around on the show about how we don't have an off-season. We don't acknowledge the off-season. But there's a lot of seriousness to it, too. Because once upon a time, I was telling Colin before we started the show tonight, this pales in comparison to going through something like cancer. But once upon a time, I was working a job. Just a normal job I didn't like. And I remember that what got me through the day was listening to shows that I like. And so to think that we're in a position now where whether you're a truck driver, whether you're in a hospital, whether you're in a, a bad family situation or whatever, the fact that we could be in a position to put out a product that's scaled enough at this point and is as spread enough to where we can actually impact just a little bit, just microscopic change and positivity in people's lives, it makes us take what we do very, very seriously. So I want to appreciate, I want to thank you, Tim. We all appreciate it. And, uh, Prayers to you, brother. Keep us updated. Whatever come, uh, I mean, you can email me if you don't want to put it out there publicly, joshpate706 at gmail.com. A lot of you do that. Uh, this is not the first email or feedback we've ever gotten like that by any stretch. But yeah, always love, even if it's tough, for you guys to submit things like that because it uh, makes the show more than just a show. It kind of makes it community. All right, let's shift gears here. Let's dive into the show tonight. 
This whole Arizona State dossier thing, yeah, we found a perfectly good reason to use the word dossier in college football. A lot of you watched the show last week, and if you didn't, maybe you saw the Arizona State individual video. And you remember when this story was breaking last week, if you don't remember, the very, very quick 10-second summary is, we had a dead period for 15 months in college football because of COVID. You weren't allowed to take visits anywhere. You weren't allowed to have kids on campus, and Arizona State apparently violated that. Now, again, the evidence has not put, it's not been put in front of us individually, but Pete Thamel at Yahoo is doing a pretty darn good job of coming as close to it as possible. But I talked about that last week, and I told you it's a big deal. I told you I thought people were going to lose their jobs because of it. And sometimes you guys surprise me. Not often, but sometimes you do. And you surprised me last week because when we did that segment, you came back and said, this is not a big deal. A lot of you did. Hundreds of you in the comments said, this is not a big deal. Yawn, collectively. And why? Are you over-dramatizing this? You're misleading, even, in your video title, which I think said Arizona State may be done. Guys, it is big. I'm not misleading you at all. I think where the disconnect is here is a lot of you are looking at what Arizona State is in hot water for, and you don't like what the letter of the law was. You think that the way the NCAA implemented the dead period, and the length of which they implemented that dead period, was stupid. And you had a problem when I even suggested that someone's going to be punished for not adhering to that. If you haven't watched this show very often, let the familiar viewers fill you in on the fact that there was no one who railed against the complete and utter stupidity of the way the NCAA handled this, especially towards the end of it, than yours truly. I didn't agree with it any more than a lot of you, just like when I drive through downtown Atlanta. I don't agree with the fact that it's only 55 on an eight-lane portion of 75, 85 north and south, but it is 55. And so if I go through it there at 80 and I get popped, they got every... They got every right to write me a ticket because I violated a law. And so right now, here's the situation behind the scenes. A lot of coaching staffs didn't like this. A lot of coaching staffs looked at the way the NCAA dead period was dragging on and on and on, and they said, this is stupid. We could find ways to responsibly host recruits and their families, but yet they were told no. And so they begrudgingly adhered to the standing law of the land. And one program, at least, one program apparently didn't. So yes. It's a very big deal, and it's a big deal because it doesn't sound like there's going to be a whole lot of investigatory work has to be done on the NCAA's part here. So what's new? Because I'm not just here to summarize what we talked about last week. What's new? Well, what's new is, as of this morning, Pete Thamel over at Yahoo Sports released another in now several versions of this story where he apparently got his hands on that dossier. And you're looking on the screen right now, if you're watching on YouTube, about some of the notable takeaways from what the Thamel story contained. Among the submissions inside this dossier, I'm using the dossier word as much as possible, it listed 10 staffers and 13 prospects that the person who submitted this thing said, you need to investigate. They sent it to Arizona State and they sent it to the NCAA and apparently Yahoo Sports. Also, we had specific allegations with receipts and screenshots showing payment for illegal visits. You're privy to this sort of thing if you're a former Arizona State staffer. And we had allegedly security camera footage of Herm Edwards with a prospect. Now, here's where it really got juicy. So you'll go later on in that piece. I'm not going to break it down for you, but you go later on in the Pete Thamel story and it said, we could not at Yahoo Sports, independently verify that it was Herm Edwards. However, the person in question was wearing a hat very similar to the one that Herm Edwards normally wears. That is quintessential NCAA investigation stuff right there. This is not exactly the FBI we're talking about. Look, here's the takeaway. Again, let me restate very clearly for the folks in the back. It doesn't matter what you and I thought about whether this should have been a rule or how long it should be implemented. It was. And so now I want to remind you what we said last week. This is serious. I think a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. 
Because this is not going to be a normal NCAA investigation. For many reasons, this is not going to be a normal NCAA investigation. First of which, you have former staffers totally willing, ready, and able to go on the record. Pete Thamel admitted it and reported as much in his Yahoo Sports story. Secondly, you've got documentation. You've got screenshots. You've got group text. You've got receipts. You've got all sorts of proof of travel being paid for. Again, according to this story, you have the ability to leverage a prospect's future eligibility against them if they won't cooperate with the investigation. And then you also have the added ability, and in all likelihood they will exercise this, to offer immunity, if you're the NCAA, to offer immunity to prospects uh, in exchange for that testimony. So for all of those reasons, I think this is going to go way quicker. Lightning speed in relation to the snail's pace that this stuff normally goes at. And number two, yes, I think it's a very big deal. It's just that our opinion on whether it should or shouldn't have been a rule doesn't really factor in here. It was. It was violated egregiously, it looks like. And there's going to be you-know-what-to-pay-for-it from uh, Arizona State's point of view. So that's all I'm saying about that. Yes, it's going to happen. Let's move on. All right, so um, last year, Florida had a very unique season last year. I think we all remember that. And so I arrived, I was driving back home last night from Columbus. I was driving up to Nashville, and I was thinking about different coaches and what the perception is versus what the reality is out there. And so let's talk about Dan Mullen here. I think 2021 is going to be the defining season for Dan Mullen, even though he's been at Florida several years now. Context is so important in life, and context is important in college football. Think about winning the lottery. Not all lottery winners are equal. Some live happily ever after. Some have their lives just implode in on themselves like a dying star. And similarly, if we were to go to this point last year, number one, it would be great if I told you, hey, you're going to have a football season. Everyone rejoice. But then number two, if I were to tell you Florida fans, you're going to beat Georgia, you're going to win the East, you're going to have a Heisman Trophy finalist, you would just assume we're about to hit our big lottery. But then I say, hold on, I got the shh over your mouth. And I tell you, but you're not going to get it done against Texas A&M. But you're going to implode spectacularly against LSU. You're going to then lose to Alabama. No shame in that. But then you're going to totally no-show a bowl game and get splattered against Oklahoma. That is the downside of the lottery winner. That's your cousin stabbing you in the back. That's your wife leaving you once she takes half. And that's your family all turning on you and your kids hating you. That's that kind of lottery winner. That's how the season ended for Florida. And so now we arrive at 2021. And I said this today and I'll reiterate it now. It's very strange to be four years in. Dan Mullen's entering his fourth season now at Florida. It's really weird to be four years in at a very high-profile program and to have a lot of people still kind of on the fence as to, you know, who you are. Like, what is Florida football under Dan Mullen? Well, the answer to that being unclear still is why I think 2021 in many ways is a defining year. Why is it a defining year? Well, it's simple, because Dan Mullen hasn't defined himself fully. I don't think he's defined what Florida Gator football is fully under his tenure. 2020 was not a coronation, as it turned out. Again, if I were to have told you in the preseason, going to win the East, going to beat Georgia, going to have a Heisman Trophy finalist, you would have thought, okay, well, certainly, even if we don't win the SEC or we win a national title, they will be saying about us at the end of the year, we have arrived. They weren't saying that. You guys in Gainesville weren't even saying that. But it did serve as a reset button. Because even though things were disastrous towards the end, there was a certain element of kind of a reset button hit. Because a lot of people going into last year found it very popular and very in vogue to say things like, well, Dan Mullen can't beat Kirby. Well, you can't say that once he beats him. Well, he can't win the East. Well, you can't say that once he wins the East. So reset button, reset button. 
You've also got that very, very popular talking point at this point with Florida and Dan Mullen, which is, well, he can't recruit. No, he can't recruit a number one class. He hadn't recruited a top five class. They've recruited well. It's just all about context. Okay, what do you think Florida recruiting should be? My personal opinion is, yeah, I think they should be better than they are. But guys, they're averaging a top 10 finish over the last few years under Dan Mullen. It's not like they've been hanging out in the mid-20s and the low 30s. Like, they've done good. It's just that's it. They've done good or maybe even really good. They haven't been elite. They haven't been great. And it's all within the context of who you have to face. You're looking at their schedule right now. If you're watching on YouTube, they got Bama in week three. Severe underdog, even at home against Alabama, because they don't recruit on par with Alabama. They go to LSU. They'll be a big underdog. They don't recruit on par with LSU. You got Georgia the next week. They do not recruit on par with Georgia. And so any given year, you're talking about a quarter to a third of your schedule, given the pace they're currently recruiting at, being against teams that are going to feature a better roster than you. That doesn't mean you can't beat them. They, they handled Georgia last year. It just means everything has to come together every time. Because you see, the way I look at the 2020 Florida team, it's a very mixed result. There are a lot of good takeaways. It's great that you beat Georgia. That's wonderful. It's great that you won the East. It's phenomenal that Dan Mullen took a quarterback he didn't even intend to start initially and ended up sending him to New York City. That says a lot about the capability of your program. But then I also look on the other hand, about the inability to have a team ready to play LSU, the inability to have quality depth to where you can afford to lose a starter here and there and still maintain the same cruising altitude and the same speed, Florida can't do that with their current talent roster. Now you start adding layers of depth and you can't afford to do that. But look, it doesn't really matter whether you're pro Dan Mullen or anti Dan Mullen, whether you're sold on him, Gator fan or not, whether you're sold on him as the guy who can take you to the mountaintop or not, because all that's just talk. Eventually the season gets here. This one I think is very significant within this context. It's just hard to me to handicap the future of Florida under Dan Mullen. And when I say future, let me be clear. I mean within the context of can they win an SEC championship? Can they win a national championship? Should always be the goal at Florida. You should be recruiting at an elite level. You should be contending for national championships every year. I think the NFL noise after last year meant something. It certainly didn't mean nothing. You could have arguments about whether it was ever serious. I think it was serious on Dan Mullen's part. I think there was a lot of interest there. Now, some guys can turn that switch on and off. Some guys can look elsewhere. And then when they look back over here, they can be totally razor sharp, focused and zoned in and it doesn't affect them. I'm in the remains to be seen camp on that, but we'll know very early. So that's, again, one of the many reasons why I look at 2021 as a defining year, because if that little theory is right, if there were serious overtures made, or if there was a lot emotionally from Dan Mullen's point of view invested in maybe trying out the NFL waters, a normal person could run the risk of checking out mentally on his current job. Now, Dan Mullen's not a normal person. You don't rise to the level he's at in the industry being a normal person. However, it's just something to keep an eye on, okay? Because if you see them operating at a high level early in the year, forget about all that, that's meaningless. The second thing that you then focus on is Emory Jones. Emory Jones holds a lot of the cards here. Because Emory Jones, obviously, for those unfamiliar, quarterback that's going to start for Florida this year, he's not a true freshman. That's a guy who's been on campus several years now. So whatever Dan Mullen's going to do with him from a developmental standpoint it should be done by this point. And so you're going to see it. Now, there is no substitute for in-game reps. But short of just being able to start an entire season, Dan Mullen's got what he's got in Emory Jones. I'll tell you what could go a long way in changing the narrative here. That's just flat out Emory Jones being a lot better than 
you think he's going to be? Because I can tell you what the popular sentiment's going to be for Florida going into this season outside of Gainesville. People are going to think they're going to take a step back for production-wise. They're going to take a step back. Emory Jones is not going to be as good as Kyle Trask. Uh, let's see, all the preview magazines tell me they've got only, what, five or six returning starters on offense. And so the perception is going to be they're going to be down. That's not a bad thing. Perception doesn't matter. They don't give you wins and losses for perception. Uh, if anything, I think it's a good thing because it doesn't mean that you got a white hot spotlight on you coming into 2021. But here's the thing about lukewarm expectation. You better not fall short of the lukewarm expectation. You fall short of the, the insane like high-end expectation like Kirby does sometimes with Georgia. That's one thing because you can go 10-2 and two and still fall short. But if they're expecting eight wins from you and you go 7-5, and five, or if they're expecting nine from you, you go eight and four, seven and five, uh, that's a little bit different deal. I think 2021 is such a huge year because this is not a roster void of championship caliber talent. They don't have it in as plentiful a supply as the other big boys. But make no mistake about it. If things click, starting at the quarterback position, if things really click for Florida, you know, if Dan Mullen is who I and many people think he is as a developer at that position, you saw what happened last year when quarterbacks figured out. You saw what can happen at a lot of other positions. You get that synergy. It felt really good at times last year for Florida and then kind of got erased down the stretch. So um, let's have a lot more front end than back end of 2020 as it relates to 2021. Uh, let's continue. You know, I'm not done talking about the SEC, but I mean, we can't make it an SEC show. So I'm going to wrap the show in a few minutes with this whole Jimbo Kirby Smart Texas A&M Georgia Really interesting, really unexpectedly heated debate right now going on. In fact, I'll pull my account up and let you know. I don't need to do this for like 10 minutes, but let you know where these numbers are because I didn't expect it to be that close. Anyway, we're going to talk about that in like five minutes. In the meantime, we roll on with our big swing games for each conference. Tonight we're doing the Big 12, and I did something that we haven't done so far. We're going to do uh, two games for one team. So let's roll into this. The swing game is not your biggest game, necessarily. The swing game is the one that when we look back at the end of the season, we circle and say, that's really what led to this result. That was the impetus for how the rest of the season ended up unfolding. Let's start with Oklahoma, the overwhelming favorite to win the Big 12. I think Oklahoma's swing game is when TCU comes into Norman Week 7. This is very important from a scheduling dynamic standpoint to understand that it falls right after a stretch that sees Oklahoma go to Kansas State. And you may not really think much of that, but they do at Oklahoma because they lost to Kansas State last year. So you got the revenge spot on the road. Then you've got the game against Texas. And what comes after that two-game stretch? You've got TCU. So if you're watching on YouTube, you see Oklahoma's entire schedule here. I know you see Iowa State down there at the bottom, and everyone's got high expectation for Texas at the quarterback position with Sark in town. But could you find me for certain on this schedule you're looking at a quarterback that's going to be beggar, better than Max Duggan? I said for sure. You can throw half a dozen of them at me you think maybe. What if Max Duggan is the best quarterback that Oklahoma faces in the regular season this year? Could be. He could be. That's not to take anything away from my guy Brock Purdy up at Iowa State, but I'm just saying with an offensive line, we have no clue what Max Duggan's going to look like because he didn't have one last year. So this could be a sneaky game here. I am really... I'm high on Oklahoma as a legitimate championship contender, okay? So when I look at this TCU game, I think to myself, a fringe playoff team could stumble here. But a legitimate championship contending team, they take care of business here. They pull away. It's 37-17 to 17 late in the fourth quarter. That's the kind of dominant performance you would expect even coming off the Texas game. So remains to be seen there. How about Texas? I got two games for Texas. I could not narrow it down to one. And to be honest... 
I didn't tell Noah this, but I gave serious consideration to sending three Texas games. The first one is Oklahoma State at Texas. This is in week seven. I know we got the Sooner game highlighted there, but it's Oklahoma State at Texas in week seven. And I want you to think about this, okay? This is a very, I think it's probably the tough scheduling dynamic spot in the Big 12. You've got a stretch where Texas goes at TCU versus Oklahoma and then against Oklahoma State. If you're watching on YouTube, you can read that. If you're listening to the podcast, kind of trying to lay out for you how that schedule plays out. Oklahoma State, the third in a stretch of three very tough games there. Coming off the Oklahoma game, the Cowboys are off a bye. So here's how Texas opens the season. They have seven games before Texas has a bye. And this is going to be the fifth time in those first seven games where the Horns will be a seven-point favorite or less. In some cases, they'll be an outright underdog. But what I'm telling you is there are a whole lot of losable games here. They could be undefeated. Things could go off the rails. A lot of variance. And this is going to be probably one of the big contributing factors to that. And the other Texas game I picked was week two. I know we're kind of going in reverse order, but the second swing game for Texas is at Arkansas in week two. How does any Texas fan look at this game and feel confident? You're taking, it feels like half your roster is going to be made up of freshmen or sophomores who have never played in a packed stadium, and you're going to go into Reynolds Razorback Stadium, and um, man, that's going to be a Super Bowl atmosphere for them up in Fayetteville. Make no mistake about that. And you've also got to ask yourself, even though this is only week two, what has happened to Texas the week before at this point? They opened with Louisiana, which obviously... If you understand college football, it's not your guard variety, G5, FCS, cream puff opener. And after this game, so those opening two games are tough for Texas. After that, they still have at TCU, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, at Baylor, at Iowa State, at West Virginia. So yeah, there's still a long way to go. You come out of this 1-1 one and one or 0-2, oh going to be a tough year. You come out of it 2-0, and oh, it can still be a tough year, but man, it's important. It is vitally important for Texas to start early. Also, remember, you got a lot of big-time recruits out there, 2022, 2023, and beyond, that are wanting to see some kind of offensive validation to what they're being sold right now. Fast start, very important for Texas. How about Iowa State? Obviously, all the national attention for Iowa State is going to be focused. Uh, it's kind of late in the year. So Iowa State plays Oklahoma, what is it, like week 12 or week 13, second to last week of the year. And that's where all the national attention is going to be. Because the perception is there's only one place that Iowa State can go from here. they got to beat Oklahoma, win the Big 12, make the playoff. Otherwise, you know, they already made the Fiesta Bowl last year. Like, they already finished second. They already finished runner-up, and they won the Fiesta Bowl. And so that's where the focus is going to be. But their final seven games are tough. And I circled their trip to West Virginia in Week 9 as their big swing game. Uh, West Virginia is on the road. It's kind of a tough one because I don't think people remember they don't process West Virginia when they think Big 12. You just think all these teams in Texas and up through the Great Plains, and then you got West Virginia a thousand miles away from the closest team. And so it's tough for these teams. A lot of times when they have to fly east, it's not easy on them. And it's normally an early kickoff, so that's always there too. It's a big revenge spot. West Virginia's coaching staff will tell you this is the only game they really feel like they just totally no-showed last year. They got blanked. They got it run up on them in Ames, Iowa. So this is a return trip here. They're at West Virginia, are the Iowa State Cyclones, the week before they play Texas. Big swing spot there. And lastly, how about Oklahoma State? I'm going to bring Iowa State in here again. Oklahoma State at Iowa State in week eight. That's the big swing game to me for the Cowboys. This has been a one-possession game six straight years now, which I didn't know until about 45 minutes ago. It's going to be one of those classic perception versus reality games. Your perception is going to tell you Iowa State's a perennial, or preseason, not perennial, preseason top 10 team. 
Oklahoma State is not that. But yet, you look at how close these games are every year, and you look at how even though Iowa State is operating at, at maximum efficiency right now, it's not a team loaded with the kind of athletes Ohio State has or Alabama has, meaning they can't show up, put their B-minus effort on the field, and just count on winning these kinds of games. And so it's one to watch there. Second straight row game for Oklahoma State. So their entire season could be made in this stretch. They go to Texas, and they go to Iowa State. How about those two back-to-back? I think their season will be defined there now that I look at their schedule more. So those are our Big 12 swing games. Do we venture to the West Coast? I'm going to let the comment section dictate that for next week. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. I wanted to wrap the show with a very unusual segment. I don't do these a whole lot. And I didn't know that I was going to do this today, only I went on Twitter earlier and I asked a question kind of in passing, and you guys made it really close. So now I got it pulled up in front of me. Here you go, Colin. If I were to ask you, Georgia or Texas A&M, no context, what would you say? And then I add context in a little bit later on, but if I were to just say Georgia, Texas A&M, and you just make up in your own mind what that means, what would you say? I'm going to give you the context in a second. I think a lot of people... When they do the whole comparative cross-division thing right now in the SEC, it's Georgia and Alabama. Because you normally, the way your mind's going to work is you take the top team from over here and your perceived top team from over on this side. Even though Florida won the East last year, most people still think Georgia's the top program over there. But I don't think there is a comparison for Alabama in the SEC. What I think is a lot more accurate and a lot more competitive comparison, as it turned out to be validated today, is Texas A&M and Georgia. So now here's the context. I put on Twitter earlier today, let's say someone arrives from the future, they've been hanging out in 2025, and they guarantee you one of these two has won a national championship by them. Who would it be? Now, i got to be honest with you. I thought this was going to be 70-30 Georgia. As of right now, this has been up 10 hours. It's sitting at 52.6% Georgia, 47.4% Texas A&M. Let's think about this. You may be surprised at that too. I am. Let's think about this. Both programs, obviously, led by Nick Saban assistants. You got Jimbo out in College Station. You got Kirby at Georgia. They're both several years in, so neither one of these is a new staff or a new coach anymore. Limitless resources in both places. Fertile recruiting ground in both places. Both fan bases absolutely starved for a title. Would crawl over broken glass naked if it meant that's what it takes to win a national championship right now. And each program, for it seems like an eternity, has felt like they're just a quarterback away. Now, in college football, one year can seem like an eternity. I think my answer is Georgia to this, but it's not a slam dunk. But I'll tell you why my answer is Georgia. If one of these two is going to win a title over the next four years, I think it would be Georgia, only because it's inevitable when you look at who we're talking about here, you're going to have to go through Alabama. And I've seen Georgia go up against Alabama several times now. I saw them back-to-back years, 2017 and 2018, play classic games against Bama where they, you could make the argument, outplayed them and ended up being on the wrong end on the scoreboard at the end. But the bottom line is they've traded punches with Alabama. Texas A&M has yet to trade punches with them. Texas A&M's been run out of the building thus far in Jimbo Fisher's tenure every time they've played Alabama. And so if that is the hurdle you've got to clear, I've watched Georgia clip it with the bottom of their sneaker. At Texas A&M, they've got bloody shins. They got a busted kneecap. They hadn't come close to clearing that Alabama hurdle. 
And the second thing here is I really believe in the subconscious of the college football public. I think people hold Georgia to a little bit higher standard. You may not admit this, or maybe you do, or maybe you don't even realize it, but I think sometimes when we start to watch recruiting rankings roll in, and you see a team like Georgia, you see a coach like Kirby Smart keep stacking those top three classes, number one rated classes on top of each other, your expectation level for that program starts to rise, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but you start to judge them and grade them differently. I want you to think about last year. Last year, Jimbo Fisher had a quarterback that felt like he'd been on campus for a decade in Kellen Mond, and Kirby trotted out Stetson Bennett, and that was a whole fiasco in and of itself, the quarterback position at Georgia. And so it was perceived that Georgia's offense was a disaster last year, and then out in College Station, you've got an offensive guy in Jimbo Fisher, and he's got a multi-year starter at quarterback. They both averaged 32 offensive points per game last year. The offenses were like identical, and we perceive Georgia to have been a mess last year offensively. I think you're just holding them to a little higher standard than Texas A&M in your mind. I get why you're doing it, but when we're comparing apples to apples here, I think I'd lean Georgia. But what the public says about Kirby Smart, I think can kind of be sad about Jimbo Fisher. And I'm a guy who's sky high on the future of Texas A&M. This has not been hard to see coming. I mean, they've recruited very, very well. It's, it's not that they've been deficient from a talent roster standpoint. When they faced Alabama, I've been at these games. I've been at a couple of A&M Bama games on the field these past couple of years. Athlete for athlete, they match up very favorably. I mean, the eyeball test, they look like Alabama. I watched them against Clemson a couple of years ago. They looked more physically impressive to me than Clemson. The difference is Clemson has a cat at quarterback any given year that can run up and down the field on you, and Texas A&M does not. And so what they say about Kirby at Georgia is he cannot recruit and develop the quarterback position, and he's too stubborn to evolve offensively. But here's the little secret out in College Station. You talk to some Aggie fans, and you get them one-on-one to where they're not embarrassed to be talking publicly, and you just ask them, you look them in the eye, what do you think about your offense? They say some of the same stuff about Jimbo Fisher, and I echo that sentiment because I watched Texas A&M, and from a, from a pure outsider 50,000-foot perspective, it aggravates me sometimes when I watch the degree with which I think Jimbo Fisher chokes his offense a little bit too much, and what I mean by that is it feels like every first down that they record, and so many things had to go right for it. And it feels like you're just laboring down the field, and it's so hard. It's got to be hard for an A&M fan when you flip the channel and you turn on Alabama. And you watch, they just, oops, oh, we scored another touchdown. It's almost like Alabama accidentally does it sometimes. And then you're watching your squad, and you you ask yourself, what, that, that Saban guy, he's a defensive guy. And our guy, Jimbo Fisher, I mean, he's an offensive specialist, isn't he? He's a quarterback guru, quarterback whisperer. Well, look. I think Jimbo Fisher philosophically has to understand eventually out there, I'm not going to be the one to sit here and tell anyone to simplify their offense. Far be it for me to do that. What I'm saying is they got the athletes to just let them run. Texas A&M, you could make the argument that's one of the best running back and wide receiver stables in the conference this year. We don't know what they're going to get at quarterback from Haynes King. But the point is I'd love to turn on an A&M game every now and then and see Jimbo Fisher, instead of having that huge like war and peace novel of a play sheet in front of him, I'd like to see him go Mike Leach a little bit more and have that little, that little palm-sized play sheet in front of him that says, you got a bunch of horses, let them run. 
I'd love to see A&M's athletes be put in a lot better position consistently to make plays because they got them. They've got them this year to the degree better than which they've had them any given year. So if I'm looking out over the expanse of the next five years, who knows? Maybe Jimbo Fisher does tweak some things. Or maybe we wake up tomorrow or this time a year from now and they've struck gold in the transfer portal at the quarterback position. Or maybe we're watching this year and Haynes King is that guy that just explodes onto the national scene. My point is that could change the answer entirely to this question. That's why it's not a slam dunk for me that it's Georgia. And apparently it wasn't for you guys either because, I mean, again, we're in borderline runoff territory here. If we get a late surge of Texas A&M love, we could be in runoff territory. So yeah, I'd go Georgia, but that's, again, that's not a slam dunk to me by any stretch. Really appreciate you guys watching the show. Had some technical trouble early on, but got past that as we tend to do around here. Uh, So always a big thanks. Make sure, make sure, and triply make sure that you guys are following the Twitter account, and the Instagram account, at LateKickJosh, and subscribing to this here YouTube channel. Really helps us out. Liking the videos, commenting, but but subscribing to that thing, it helps more than you know. And always love you guys. If you're talking about us on Twitter, if you're talking about us on Instagram, make sure you're tagging so I can spread the love as much as I can. For Director Emeritus Colin, for our entire crew down in Fort Lauderdale, I'm Josh Bate. Have yourselves a great start.